All right, we are going to be in Acts chapter 20, and I'm really going to focus in on verses 7 through 12. I'm just going to ask that you, one more time, if you would pray with me as we begin. Father, help us to be faithful with your word and the handling of your word this morning. Lord, help me to speak words that would encourage and build up and challenge, but only things that are good and true and beautiful and loving in the Spirit. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and new eyes to see your beauty, to hunger, to commune with you, and to hunger to have our lives poured out in ministry for the sake of the kingdom. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, last week we, we dealt with um, the, the riots that happened in Ephesus that Paul was kind of on the fringe of. Um, he wanted to go in to this arena and to um, participate or try to calm the, the mobs down. And we talked about just how the gospel is disruptive. And we could have said that in any time during the book of Acts. At any point, we could say, look, the gospel is disruptive. If you would give your life to following Jesus, it will turn your entire life upside down. We live in a culture where it feels like following Jesus can look an awful lot like just being, um, you know, just a good citizen in this country. And there are, there are reasons for that. There are even beautiful reasons why there's that much overlap. But it doesn't change the fact that when you are saved. When you are called to follow Jesus, when Jesus says, follow me, all throughout the history of the world, whether it was in a a nation that had a lot of Christians or if it was in a nation where Christians are persecuted, it still means laying down your life. It still means your life being completely turned upside down. And it means that as you and I are turned upside down, that means our church family is turned upside down. And that means it impacts the community around us. The gospel is disruptive. Now, once the riots had calmed down, Paul um, sends for his disciples in Ephesus so that he can encourage them. He wants to help them understand that, that what you saw happen here, you should not be surprised by. And he encourages them and exhorts them to follow Jesus and then he goes through Macedonia and he starts to and he encourages the churches there that he had started. He goes back as was his pattern. He always when he would go to plant a church, he'd always want to go back, you know, sometimes a few years later or whenever. He wants to go back and he wants to encourage them, build them up and see how they are doing. And so he does that. And then he goes on and encourages the Greece, the churches in Greece and then continues on his journey avoiding at one point a plot against him. And again, we see Paul's life is just completely turned upside down from what it was. He has established a new normal as he goes from city to city, proclaiming the gospel, pouring himself out, constantly being, having his life threatened, all for the sake of the kingdom. And he just keeps going. And eventually he lands in Troas. And this is the, the place where Paul had gone before when the Holy Spirit stopped him from going into Asia. 
So Paul had been there before. He had shared the gospel. A church had started. And then he left suddenly after receiving a vision from Troas the first time. And now it's likely a, a few years later. And he's returned to check on this church for a week. And this is what happens in chapter 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week... When we were gathered together to break bread, so the first day of the week, that would be a Sunday. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. What in the world? I mean, what a strange passage. Now, many of you have heard this passage many times before. For others of you, because I know we have so many people who are new to the faith and new to the Bible, this may be the first time you have ever heard this passage. You have no idea. And you're wondering, did I just hear that right? Yes, Paul spoke... At the Lord, in the Lord's day, when they were all gathered, they'd broken bread together, and he spoke until midnight, and a guy fell asleep and fell out a third-story window and died. Now, some people have taken the more serious bent and, and actually preached on this or commentated on this, saying that this was God's punishment to him for falling asleep. Right? I'm glad that you respond that way because I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think that's it. Mostly, though, we do what you just did. We laugh and we make jokes about long sermons and falling asleep in church. So I could get up here and I'd be like, you think my sermons are long? Ha, ha, ha. And everyone laughs, whatever. And like, that's why you don't fall asleep in church. And then you're like elbowing the person next to you. But there is something far bigger than lame lower shelf jokes going on here. There's something far more amazing that honestly I think we often miss or we gloss over with the jokes because we use the jokes about this passage to keep us from seeing what is obvious in this passage and what is convicting and what has been convicting to me this week and I, I think it will be, I hope it will be for you. I'll get to that in a second. What do we actually know about this story? What do we know about Eutychus? This poor young guy. We know that this is the first day of the week. So like I mentioned, this is a Sunday. So this was not the Sabbath. For them, they would have, he would have worked a full day. And we've talked about before, we mentioned, you know, early, you know, first century type situation. Like work was not, um, you know, just like a few hours here or there, not responding to some emails. Like this is hard work. And people, when they were done with work, they were exhausted. And, and many of you work jobs where at the end of the day, at the end of your shift, you are just exhausted. You're just physically worn out. And that is likely his situation. And so he, along with countless others, so like we, we often think of like Sunday, like, oh, okay, like Sunday morning. No, this is probably at the end of the day. The end of a long work day. This would be more like um, at the end of Tuesday, you know, or Wednesday. You've put in, like it's the first day of the week, it would have been after Sabbath, so it'd probably be more like the end of a Monday where you're just like going back and you're exhausted. 
and you drag yourself to this house where you go to the third story of this home in a hot climate. I don't think I need to tell any of you if you've ever been up in your attic or anything where there's no air conditioning in the summer, it's uncomfortable, right? The upper stories are uncomfortable. And so he's, that's where he is. He drags himself to this house. He's in the upper room in the heat, crowded in this room. And he sits there with others for hours with torches lit around you. It says lamps, but those would have just been torches that they used for light. And so what's happening in that? Kind of the flickering of flames as you're in this room, as the sun goes down and it's dark. It's dark and the flames are flickering and the flame is burning, which is doing what? It's taking oxygen out of the room. And you're in this crowded, hot room after a long, exhausting day of work listening to Paul for hours. Some of you really can relate. I've, over the years in ministry, I've always been amazed at people who work like a third shift on Saturday into Sunday morning and they come to worship. And I've had people fall asleep and then apologize to me. You know, people who work in the hospital or people who work in the factory. And they're like, I'm sorry, you know, I, I got off work at like 7.30 and I stayed awake. I used to have a guy back in Colorado where he would work that shift, that same shift. And he would stay awake until church. So he could get to church and he would go to worship. And then sometimes he would kind of nod off and he would apologize. And I would always try to tell him that is not a discouragement to me. I'm just amazed that you're here. We had somebody this morning come, even though they had to work, they couldn't get work off, and so they had to get to work, but they came here first, even though they were only going to be here for 10 minutes because they wanted to see people. They wanted to connect with them. They brought their offering and connected with people and gave some hugs and then had to go to work. Like that type of person and the type of person that's up all night and then comes and just forces themselves like, to be here and say, I need to be here. And, and Eutychus here, that, that's not the person who, who just like kind of stays up all night on Saturday night or whatever and just kind of like, ah, I probably should go. And once the sermon like just starts, um, leans back their head and just snores. That's not what's going on here. And that's why we make all the jokes about it. But that's not what's happening with Eutychus. He is fighting to stay awake. The word says that, that the sleep overcame him, which was like this battle type word. Like That means he's fighting against sleep. He's fighting against his exhaustion and eventually the sleep overtakes him. Why would he put himself through that? Because it is that important. Because to him, this is everything. And what we know about Eutychus is what we know about all the people in these early churches. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. He was everything. The church was everything to them. He was committed. He was hungry. And there is nowhere else he would rather be. It was worth it. What is worth 
that kind of effort, that kind of exhaustion in your life. We have things like that in our culture when we say, like, I, I wonder, like, what in the world would possess somebody to get up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning and dress up in all these warm clothes and go sit in a stand, a deer stand, and look out a window for hours? What in the world? And I was with some guys here recently, and they were lamenting about how their children, like, are so spoiled because now they have heaters in these deer stands, Right? Like, and they're like, well, when I was a kid, like, I had to just like, layer it on and shove like, chemical like, hand warmers everywhere that I could and all this. Why would you do that? Like, I look at that and I'm going, that's not normal. But it is for you. If you do that, it is for you. You can't wait. Count down the days until you're able to do that. So excited to be able to go and do that. Why? Because it's worth it. I hear all the time from people when we invite them to church, like, oh, no, no, I really, I believe in Jesus. I, I love God, and, like, I want to be there, but, but Sunday's, like, my one morning to be able to sleep in. It's a really common thing. And I wonder how many of those people do you think got up early this morning to prepare a special breakfast for the Packers game this morning? Yeah, I know that I am dangerously close to guilt trip land. Like, I get it. I get, like, your whole life you've been conditioned, like, oh, like, this is your first time back in church for a long time. Like, okay, I remember this, the guilt trip. It's like when I say to somebody, oh, I haven't seen you in a long time. Like, oh, I know, but, you know, all these things. It's a guilt trip stuff. That's not where I'm going with this. Hear me out. Because I understand. When Silas and I were just in South Africa, we were able to stream the Broncos game. I thought it very funny that it was totally legal to live stream the Broncos game as long as I was in South Africa. If I'm in Wisconsin, I can't see the Broncos. It's like they don't exist. But if you're in South Africa, they're like, sure, watch the Broncos game. Well, I have at it. And so we watched the Broncos game. It's late at night there, and we're like fighting sleep to be able to watch it. Like, I'm fighting, so I'm like in and out of sleep. I'd wake up, and I'd be like, what's going on? He's like, they still haven't scored. I'm like, okay, great. I'd fall asleep, wake up. He's like, still haven't scored. Okay, great. So, like, I kind of do this. I'm fighting, and, and I'm, I'm like, I'm fighting to stay awake to watch a very mediocre football team play against a worse football team in a very boring game. Something's wrong. But spend, like ask to get up 30 minutes earlier to spend time in the word and in prayer. I can't do it. I already have to get up so early. Get up in time to go to church and worship God with with the people of God. Uh, You know, I can't make it all the time. I'm just too busy. Weekend has been too full. We We just need some downtime and some rest this morning. What's wrong with us? This isn't, I'm not saying this as a guilt trip. I'm saying this as a diagnostic for all of us. I'm just pointing out something's missing. What are we not seeing about this message, about this kingdom that a young man sees 2,000 years ago? That he would fight off exhaustion to be there. I mean, if, if this were today, and, and we had someone like Paul coming to, to speak at the church, we would have to advertise it like crazy. We'd have to remind and remind and remind. 
We'd have to convince people to come. We'd have to like say there's something else going on with it. Not just here, like this is just in, in our culture today. And then it would better start and end on time. And then kind of 20 minutes into it, we'd be fidgeting in our seats. We'd be tempted to, to grab our phones and, and check on a, the score of the game or check our Instagram feeds. And all I want to say to that is just a diagnostic to say that's reality for us so much of the time. And that means something is missing. Something is broken. And we go about our lives thinking, yeah, I want to pursue Jesus more. I want to be in the word more. I want to be used more, but I'm I'm just so busy. And our only two responses in the church typically have either been the guilt trip or the pardon. So we do things like what was said to me one time when I was struggling to have a quiet time. They said, well, Jesus died for you. The least you could do is get up and read the Bible. Well, that's not motivating. That's horrible. And so we try the the guilt trip side or we go clear to the other side and just kind of pardon and be like, ah, you know what? Don't worry about it. We don't want to be legalistic about it. Like, you don't have to be at church every week. You don't have to be in the Word every day. Like, just, like, those are all the the legalists who say that. We're all busy, and God understands that. How about a third option? How about the third option that we don't see things clearly? That if we saw the treasure hidden in the field, if we really saw it, we saw the beauty and the value and we were consumed by it, then nothing would keep us away from that. Nothing would keep us away from devoting ourselves to communing with Jesus and to being with the people of God and to pursuing him together. What I would submit is that we just don't see that clearly. That we need new eyes and we need new hearts. And so I don't want the guilt trip because what guilt trips do, what they're successful in doing at best is changing your behavior for a short time. And so I've done all the guilt trips on myself. To get up earlier, to to spend more time in the word, to spend more time in prayer. I've, I've used all the guilt trips and they work on me for a few days. Some of you who are more disciplined, it may work for a little bit longer. Some of you who are really disciplined, it may have worked for a lifetime. But what I'm saying is that's not what God wants for us. And maybe for a moment we just stop and we think something's off. For a moment we say, I, we confess, like, I'm not seeing things clearly. The problem isn't any of these motivations and any of these excuses and any of these things. It's just, do I see what is in front of me? Then maybe I just call it out and say, I, I think social media will give me more validation and more comfort than time with God. I think alcohol will be a better way of dealing with this than confessing to God. I think watching TV would be better rest than spending time with God. I think sleeping or doing other like personal hobbies would be worth more 
and make my life more valuable than pouring my lives out into the lives of others. And just respond to that. Just confess that. And name that as broken. If you feel this too, then I would say, like, that's, that's number one. You're saying, like, well, how do I respond to that? What do I do? That's number one. Call out the lie. What are you believing that is just not true? What are you convincing yourself of that is just not true? And then pray that God would give you new eyes. Pray things like in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pray then that not only we'd open our eyes, but pray that, that you'd be hungry like Eutychus. You ever watch somebody that pursues Jesus in a way that you just look at them and you say, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I worshiped like that. I wish I pursued Jesus like that. I wish I was that joyful and pouring out and giving generously of my time and my money. Like, I, I want that. If you do, like, look at characters like Eutychus and say, like, I, I want that, God. I want, I want to experience you in such a way that I would fight exhaustion just because I want a little bit more. Pray that he would give you that desire. Pray like in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Change my desires. And then I would say, we need to create space to hear from him. Create rhythms. We call those often spiritual disciplines. This is where things like the quiet time that we talk about, maybe you grew up hearing about, this is where that enters in. A time to just sit and be still and know that he is God. Know that he will be exalted among the nations, that he will be exalted in the earth. Time and space to just listen to him. And if there is a way to do quiet times and to spend that time that actually distances you from God when you do it as a, as a task and then feel kind of a sense of self-righteousness and entitlement for, for having done it or a sense of guilt for having missed it. Like I, I've mentioned this before, but when that's our response, one of those two um, avenues, we're, we're missing what he actually has for us. But there's a way to do spiritual disciplines like a quiet time that creates space to hear from God. And to commune with him. Space where you put your phone far away. Space where even if a child interrupts you, you invite them onto your lap to, to listen alongside of you as you listen. So it's one thing I would encourage you to do, to create a daily time, and a daily space where you're hearing from God through his word and through prayer, communing with him. And then create space around Sunday morning worship. We mentioned this, I think it was a couple weeks ago, I forget. 
We said, what would it look like if, if we didn't just see this church service as starting when, when the countdown like ends and it gets to zero and ending as soon as the benediction happens? But what if we saw church being together with the family of God, the people of God, as the Sunday morning thing that we're just here together experiencing? And this time, this kind of organized time of worship is just the middle chunk of it. What would it look like? What would it look like to, to come early? I had a family last week that said, hey, we've started doing that. Like we started saying, like, we're, we're going to go early. We're going to be there. We're, to us, church starts at like 9.15 because I want to be there and create space to connect with others. Or what if, I mean, get crazy, and what if like it was just 9 to noon and you just said, I'm not, I'm, that's just, that's what my Sunday morning is. I mean, that's the length of a Packers game. The thing that we move all of our schedules around, and if it's not the Packers game, you can insert whatever else the thing is that you will move around to just say, I just want to be there to connect, to be encouraged and to encourage, to prepare my heart. Like, what if, what if the state of your heart when the call to worship happens, what if the state of your heart was prepared and slowed and full of the love and encouragement of being encouraged by others and encouraging others rather than what for so many of us are, are rushed and hurried. I don't think it's an accident that I, my brain just haywired this morning. Why was I running out trying to figure out what the announcements were, thinking I had time because it's no big deal, they're doing announcements? Because I'm rushed and hurried. And there are many Sunday mornings where I get to come in and, and God puts me in a place where I, I get up early on Sunday mornings to be prepared so that I can come in here and 15 or 20 minutes be in here and just be able to go around and connect with people and not be rushed. And this morning was the reverse. What would it look like? You know, my guess is that when Eutychus showed up at this house, he did not think, okay, well, you know, I got off work at 5 Paul will probably go, you know, about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, and I can probably still get home and catch the second half. No. There's nowhere else he'd rather be. That's why he's there, fighting to stay awake. If we see it, then we'll create space for it. And we'll create space not only to receive from that, but we also need to look at, like, Paul creating that space. What Paul sees. Look at that. What, what, Paul, what Paul does. Notice what it says here about Paul. It said, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Imagine being Paul and being on all these journeys from city to city to city to have your life threatened. You just experienced a riot. Then you went through and you're just constantly going, going, going. And now you've been with them for a week and you're leaving the next day. And you're exhausted. And you know you're just going to be with the church one more time to encourage them. Why in the world would he teach until midnight in that kind of a situation? Friday was Robbie's last day in the office, and we decided it would be good to just have lunch together and sit in, in my office. We all just sat in my office and, and ate lunch together. 
And it was the longest lunch I think we've ever had. Because nobody wanted to leave. Nobody wanted to go. I think that's what's happening here with Paul. Why does Paul teach until midnight and talk with them through the night when he's set to depart? Because he loves them. Because it's worth it. Because there's nothing more valuable than pouring out his life for the sake of the gospel towards people you love. This is why he says things like he did to the church in Thessalonica. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul was not a detached theologian who just strolled through villages and delivered these profound sermons and then just kind of walked out and and coasted away on his chariot. He worked among the people. He was with them. He loved them. He poured out his life with them so that they would know that the message he was teaching and preaching was true. And he would go through these difficult journeys, traveling from city to city, often narrowly escaping death, and then going right back into those same cities to encourage them. What ministry are you doing that's worth that? That's worth pouring yourself out to the point of exhaustion. Early on in my ministry life, I, I was really struggling about like, what does ministry look like? And I was in, in an internship out in California and going to seminary and I was just, I was noticing all the stress around me among pastors and I thought like, man, I don't know if I want that kind of a stressful life. And I started looking at like, what, what are they stressed about? And I started making lists of all the things that I had heard pastors say they were stressed about and what I had been stressed about in ministry. And I started dividing them into two categories. One that was worth it and one that was not worth it. And the things that fell into the category of this is not worth the stress were things like event planning and organizing a parking lot and worrying about budgets and deciding what carpet color we should have. Like those are things I'm looking at and going like, if I'm going to get to a place where I have a nervous breakdown, I do not want it to be about the color of our carpet. And then the other list was people who were struggling in their marriages, people who are grasping at the last thread of faith, people who are battling depression and mental illness and addiction, people who were wanting to be used for the glory of God, who were pouring themselves out in others and needed encouragement. And I wrote all those things, and I looked at that column, and I was like, that's worth it. That's what I want to give my life to. Because I decided there's no way, I can't read the scriptures and find an example of following Jesus that was easy. Like off the table was like, hey, I just want to follow Jesus in a rhythm that'll just, like my life will just be easy. I'll always feel super rested and and good and just be like, hey, everything's great. That was off the table. A life that was valuable was a life that had stress in it. It had hard things in it question was what was worth it and we thought about sitting in hospital rooms 
and in living rooms and encouraging people and going to countries where nobody goes and sees them. I felt like that's ministry worth, worth doing. Part of our philosophy here as a church is to only put our resources and energy and only ask you to do that kind of ministry. There's lots of good things that we could do. There's, lot, there's tons of ideas and tons of things out there. But we want to be careful and we want to be sure that when we ask you to do something, it's that kind of ministry. We have ministries that exist to, to build up the church. And they are hard work. They can be hard work. I just mentioned needing another, like, faith kids. But this is what you need to understand. Like, for example, with that faith kids announcement, asking for, for people who would apprentice and, and partner with our teachers, we're not asking you to just do something, you know, to, like, check a box or whatever. What we're doing is, like, it's ministry that's worth it. You're investing in fifth and sixth graders, you're having the opportunity to develop them and point them to Jesus and to love them and to be another adult that they see as someone who loves and follows Jesus. Donna will always tell our faith kids teachers that, that loving kids and pointing them to Jesus is far more important than whether you get through the lesson or not. That, that kind of stress isn't worth it. I don't want any of our faith kids volunteers ever being stressed about like, oh, did I prepare enough? And, and if I get in there, like what happens if we didn't get through all the questions? Like that stress is not worth it. But noticing a kid who it's their first time and they're terrified and talking to them, that's worth it. Noticing a kid who's struggling and connecting with their parents and, and being able to love and serve that kid and then being able to love and serve that family and even losing a little bit of sleep at, at night over like worrying about that child, that is worth it. That's the kind of ministry we want to pour ourselves out for. Like, I don't want our musicians that are up here being stressed about pulling off the perfect worship set. Like, we're not, a cult, we're not cultivating a culture here where people are going to be like, well, I don't know, like, Jason played a wrong note this morning for crying out loud. Did you hear that, Robbie? I heard it. Jason, did you hear it? Yeah, I hope so, right? Who cares? Who cares? Like, man, like, that's not, that's not what I want them stressing out about. Oh, Jason's totally going to stress like that. That's, Irony, irony. Um, like that. Like we just—that's not what we want. Like I don't want them worrying about that. I don't want them like showing off and like everyone going like, "Wow, listen to them!" and "Wow, listen to all that." They. I want them pouring themselves into praying for this gathering, so they would come together knowing that they are ushering all of us together into the presence of Jesus. That we would all sing and praise and worship Him. That's what I want them pouring their lives into. That is worth stress. We have a big group of teenagers going to Fall Fest next week. And we always need volunteers. But I don't want them stressing, and I don't want Kristoff stressing over pulling off an event. I want them pouring their lives into our teenagers, showing them what it looks like to follow Jesus. Listen, one of the reasons why we do keep things simple on a calendar front and simple as, as ways to, to connect and, and things that we do as a big church is because we're meant to equip you to send you out to proclaim the good news and live lives as citizens of the kingdom and children of the king. 
in the midst of a culture that is lost and hurting. And if you're spending all of your time planning and running events to, let's face it, entertain bored Christians, it's not worth it. I've given my life to say that is not worth it. But to pour yourself out for your lost neighbor that is hurting and asking questions and to be there and sit with them, to take their kids, to to love them, to pour yourself out to care for a family that is in need or to care for orphans and to support a foster family, to pour yourself out to meet with new believers that you see and and teach them how to read the Bible and how to, to follow Jesus and how to pray. That's worth it. We have people who, who lead Bible studies. There's a way to lead a Bible study that's worth it, and there's a way to lead a Bible study that's not. And the way that's not is to just get through and be like, okay, we've got to get through this lesson, and we're going to get through these things, and I'm going to assume that if we got through the study on Ephesians, then we've got Ephesians, and we're good. That is not the way. But we have people leading Bible studies who know that the, the whole point is to love God and to love others and to encourage them to to hunger after God's word, to desire it, to to learn how to to feed on it themselves and to grow in their understanding of it and obedience to it. That's worth it. We exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry is not about programs and events. It's about building up the church in love and maturity in Christ. It's to send you out to the world as salt and light. And many of you are doing it right now. It's so encouraging to me every week. One of the phrases that I've said a lot over the seven, last seven years that I've been here has been, that's the thing! And what I mean by that is when somebody says like, oh, you know, I haven't, I haven't been here, I haven't done that or whatever, but like I'm, uh, you know, I, I went to the school and, and we, took, we took gifts to the teachers and, and prayed for them and offered to pray for them. I'm like, that's the thing. You're like, oh, we went over and we, we served and we mowed the lawn for this family that, that is, um, that's fostering a child and we just offered to take their kids or whatever. I'm like, that's, that's the thing. I prayed with my coworker this week and I'm trying to figure out like how do I share the gospel with him? I'm like, that's the thing. For so long in the church, we thought like all these other things are the thing, like having a full calendar and all these events and all these things. That's not the thing. People, that's what matters. That's what's worth that kind of stress. And the stories that I'm hearing of people taking in foster children, children and adopting and sacrificially giving time and money to help families in need, being a person who is on call for a friend battling addiction, discipling people, sharing the gospel. That's the thing. That's the ministry that's worth it. That's the column that says, like, yes, I'm exhausted. Some of you I have talked with and you are just exhausted and you've poured yourself out and there's this beautiful look on your face when you're talking about how you're just, you're just exhausted and you've poured yourself out and yet there's this expression on your face and it's the expression of joy. Exhausted joy. That's the best, right? 
Like getting home from a day where you're exhausted, but you feel like that was worth it. That's what pouring your life out for the gospel is. So, so how do you do that? Well, it goes back to that first point of creating space. Create space on Sunday morning. So you're available to minister to people. You go in and say, I'm going to go in early because I don't know who needs to be ministered to. Or volunteering in, in children's ministry. It means maybe like if you want to start there, like committing to coming to your area lunch because that's just a space, not a program, not like putting on anything. It's a space to get people together so that you can pray for others and be prayed for and care for them and say, okay, God, I'm going to go minister to who you have for me today. Make that time once a month. Start praying for your coworkers. Maybe first silently asking God, God, give me opportunities to tell them about you. Give me opportunities to pray for them. And do that. Beyond that, grab a communication card and say, I just I want to serve. I don't know how I want to serve, but there are some key things that we do. One is we have an Acts email list, which is where when, when there's just a need out there where people in our church are out in the community and when they find that they're kind of overwhelmed, they're serving where God has called them to serve, they're loving the people in front of them and they're like, hey, I could use some help. They let us know and often that goes out into the Acts email list. If there's help, needing help of money or finances or whatever. And so you can get on that email list so that when those needs come across, you can be like, you know what? I can do that. I can go fix that pipe. I can help that person move. You could also join a welcomed team. Welcomed is our ministry that where we surround families that are fostering or adopting. And we surround them with a team of people who say, we're going we're gonna to support you in this. This is a whole church kind of thing. I have, a, like, one day I, I hope that everyone in our church family that considers this their church home is a part of a welcomed team. Because that can entail everything from mowing a lawn to watching kids and giving a break to the parents. Like, there's so many ways in doing that, but you are investing in people saying, like, we are going to help this family. And the people who have done it have just incredible testimonies of how it has changed them and shaped them and the beauty of that ministry. And they would all say, like, this is worth it. There's so many other things. You can visit people in prison. I'm looking at Dave Ekstrom. Like, if you want to visit people in prison, talk to Dave Ekstrom. It's an incredible mission field to go and to talk to people and to, to let them know, like, hey, we want to we wanna tell you about Jesus. And we want to give you a family that you could connect with and belong to. And I know specifically that they are specifically desperate for women who are willing to go and minister to women in the prisons. So maybe it's something like that. That's worth it. Visiting those who are sick in the hospital. Visiting those who are alone in the nursing home. These are things that are worth pouring yourself out for. You want, to, you want to know something that would let you feel the delight of the Lord? You know, he has the parable of the banquet. He says, when you go and invite people, like, don't invite people who can pay you back. You want something like that? Go to a nursing home and ask them, hey, I want to visit somebody who doesn't get a visitor and maybe doesn't even, doesn't even know, like, they're not super aware of their surroundings. Like, give me somebody that nobody wants to go in and talk to and that maybe even other people feel like, I don't know if that's even worth it, they're not going to remember you tomorrow. 
and go and sit with them and pray with them and feel the delight of your Lord. That's worth pouring your life over, out over. That's worth losing sleep over. And that's what's going on with Paul. And that's why the day before he's set to leave on yet another exhausting journey, he's there until midnight and then into the early morning being with them, pouring himself out. And what we see is what we've seen all through Acts, is that when people have new eyes and they see it as a treasure hidden in a field, hungry for every opportunity to be in the word, hungry to be together as a church family, hungry to pour their lives out for the sake of the kingdom, it creates a new normal. And that new normal looks strange to the outside world. Just look, this is just so crazy. Paul went down. So Eutychus falls out of the third story floor, falls dead. And Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's called understatement. Are you kidding me? A guy falls out of the window and dies Paul raises him back to life. And what do they do? They grab something to eat and talk for the next five or six hours. And oh, by the way, they were not a little comforted. Like the miraculous had become normal. They were amazed. They were worshiping. But it didn't change anything other than to say, I don't want this to end. I want to keep being together. What they are seeing is what has happened in the course of their lives over the previous three years is that the, the abnormal, the miraculous had become normal. What do you want to be normal? We all battle this. What do you want to be normal? Do you want small talk with your friends about the game to be normal? Or do you want miraculous things that you're seeing God doing to be the norm? What do you want to be normal? Do you want it to be being nervous about sharing your faith with somebody and being nervous about that so you just avoid it and spend all your time avoiding it? Or just sharing it and, being, and seeing people come to Christ? What do you want to be normal? You want to be dragging yourself to church every Sunday and kind of watching the time and thinking like, yeah, I probably should go. I know it'd be better. Or do you want normal to be bursting through the door in anticipation and just losing track of time and just wanting to be with people and connect with people? And by the way, if you're an introvert looking for that one person that you're going to invest in and encourage this morning, just one. You don't all need to be the circus monkey like me, jumping around and like talking to everybody. If you are sitting there and you're like, yeah, I'm just not that outgoing. I, I want to go and I want to minister to people. Take this challenge. Pray that God would show you who. And come into a Sunday morning and say, God, I've got the emotional bandwidth for one. That's what I got. And God's going to look at you because he created you and say, I know that. 
Or do you think that God is an overbearing boss who's just going to demand and demand and demand? Or do you think that he's a good father who wants to give you the beautiful gift of joining with him in his work? And so he says to you, I know you're shy. I know you're introverted. I'm going to give you one. Would you just encourage that person? And I guarantee you, if you do that, that will be the most meaningful thing that will happen to that person on this Sunday morning. And it won't even be close. Do you want that to be normal? And all starts with their eyes. Paul has new eyes. People of Troas have no new eyes. And these new eyes make for new normals. It's normal to pack together in a hot, stuffy upper room. It's normal to fight exhaustion because it's that important. It's normal to see people raised from the dead. It's normal to continue talking until morning, and it's normal to move on and do it again the next day because it's worth it. So let's pursue that together. Like our responsibility as a church is, is not a, a TED talk and some good music. That's not worth this. But being the people of God, being poured out for the kingdom gathered together, hungry for the word, overflowing with worship and love for one another, that is worth it. New people coming, receiving Christ, following him, getting baptized, addictions being overcome, orphans being cared for, communities being revived. That is worth it. So let's pursue that together. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to live lives of worth, of value, and we know that the economy that, that we seek is the economy of the kingdom, that what defines a life well lived is your good pleasure in us. To hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. To feel your joy, to feel your rest, to trust you as we create space to pursue you and abide in you, as we pour ourselves out for ministry that is worth it. Lord, I pray that you would give us new eyes, that you would create in us a renewed and clean heart and a renewed spirit, and that you would let us see how we can pour our lives out for the kingdom that is a treasure hidden in a field. Upon finding it, we go and sell all that we have that we might take part in it. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.